So I walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, and I held out my hand. He took a knife, cut my finger, some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. And then I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a Catholic saint, put it in my hands, and lit it aflame. And uh, wow. it burned quickly. It was, it was merely symbolic. It didn't hurt. And he said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into Cosa Nostra. Violate what you know about this life. Betray your brothers, and you will die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. Do you accept? Yes, I do. And at that point, you're a made man. Welcome to episode 163 of the Michaela Peterson podcast. I'm Michaela Peterson. In this episode, I spoke with Michael Francis. Michael's a former mobster and leading member of the Colombo crime family. After being part of the mob in a very serious way for more than 20 years, he decided to completely change his life in a large part because of Christianity. His story is pretty amazing. Some people have lives that sound like made up stories. It's a crazy world out there. I was very excited to speak to him. I have been for a while. He's the author of a number of books like Mafia Democracy, which we discussed, and he works as a public speaker with the goal of steering people away from participating in organized crime. Michael and I discussed the ritual of becoming a made member in the mob, Michael's wife bringing him into Christianity, the growing mistrust of government today, the acts of the apostles and Jesus, and more. Before we get started, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Rabbit Air. You can see it glowing in the background right there. There it is. For people who suffer from them, living with allergies can range from mild to miserable. And in rare cases like mine, allergies can make your face look like you weigh 50 pounds more than you do. Thankfully, Rabbit Air's HEPA air purifiers filter out 99.97% of the allergens and pollutants from the air. Since it's the beginning of the fall allergy season, it's the perfect time to get one for your home office space or your bedroom or your kids' bedrooms or your living room or your kitchen. A lot of people suffer from allergies without realizing it. So if you're someone who wakes up with a stuffy nose or you're congested, allergies can look like a cold as well. So if you're someone who gets a cold and then gets bronchitis, it could be because of allergies. Given we breathe in nearly 2,000 gallons of air, cleaning the air in your house can really reduce immune responses to allergens. They've really helped me and I like how they sound and look. You can get your Rabbit Air air purifier today by going to rabbitair.com to see their models or call them 24 seven to speak to a Rabbit Air consultant. That's R-A-B-B-I-T-A-I-R.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. How have you been? Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. I, I've been good. You know, I've been busy. Um, things have recovered quite a bit since uh, we had that downtime in the pandemic, but uh, everything's been good. Before we get started, um, for anyone who doesn't know who you are, do you think you could give a brief background about who you are? And we'll get into this, what you've done and what you currently do. Sure. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Michael Francis grew up in New York. Um, my dad was the underboss of the Colombo family, one of the five New York Mafia Cousin Ostra families. So I, I grew up in that environment. He was a very, very high profile uh, figure. Um, he was kind of like the John Gotti of his day in terms of media attention, law enforcement attention. So I grew up around that. My dad was uh, indicted several times, went to trial four times eventually was convicted on a major uh, racketeering case, <clears throat> excuse me, a major, uh, and uh, went to prison uh, for 50 years. And I was a pre-med student in uh, Hofstra University at the time of his uh, incarceration. 
And Joe Colombo, who was the boss of my family back then, kind of took me under his wing. And through a series of events, I decided to leave school and try to help my dad get out of prison. And as a result, my dad proposed me for membership in that life. I became a made member of that life, took the oath uh, in 1975, and spent about 20 years in that life, first as a soldier, which is the initial rank when you, you come into the life, and then as a captain, capital regime. And um, I was a, a major target of law enforcement myself, you know, mainly because of my dad's name and started that way. But I was arrested 18 times. I was indicted seven times. I had two federal racketeering cases, one brought on by Rudy Giuliani. Went to trial five times, uh, was acquitted in five cases, uh, but then took a 10-year uh, plea for a, for a 10-year prison sentence and a $15 million restitution. Um, and just before that, I met a young woman who's now my wife of 37 years. And basically, it was because of meeting her and her faith that you know caused me to try to walk away from that life. And that's what I did back in 1995 after serving my prison sentence. And um, since then, I've been a, a speaker, an author, um, been involved in the uh, film industry to, to some degree. And uh, here I am some 20 odd years be alive and free and, you know, living a, a fairly normal life. So that's that's the basic thumbnail sketch. OK, this is great. You you've had such an interesting life. Um, is it? Have you had the experience going through these experiences in your life that it's surreal or because you grew up in this, did it kind of feel normal? Yeah, early on, it was normal for me um, because I don't remember anything but my dad in that way uh, from the time I was, you know, able to start to realize what life was all about. So, you know, growing up like that was normal. Growing up for me, hating hating the police, hating law enforcement, hating the government was normal because I viewed them as enemies to my family. Uh, you know, I always heard chatter in the house and how bad, you know, law enforcement could be. I loved and idolized my dad. So uh, anybody that was, you know, trying to hurt him uh, became my enemy. So it was normal, you know, growing up. I mean, I, I looked at it that way. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, wh what about stress wise? I mean, being indicted all the time and having cops there or after you constantly, were you guys in a kind of hyper stressed position? You know, Mikhail, it's funny you ask that. <clears throat> I went to, uh, about a year ago, I went to the doctor and uh, I had a little bit of a, a condition that on your face where you start to lose your beard just a little bit in spots. And they say, normally it's caused by stress. So the doctor said to me, do you have a lot of stress? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what stress is. I just lived this way my whole life, you know, with watching out and being careful and, and you know, trying not to make any mistakes. So it was just such a normal part of my life. I don't think that I viewed it any differently, even till now. I mean, things that are major to some other people are, are nothing to me. Uh, because of my, you know, my history in that regard. So, but, you know, in that life, it, it's, it's very difficult to navigate the life on its own. But when you have that additional, um, you know, problem of law enforcement constantly on you, like they were with me, uh, it becomes that much more difficult. So I was always kind of walking a tightrope, you know, my whole 20 years in that life. Yeah, Wow. Um, and I, I looked up how old you were before the podcast. Are you 71? 
I am. Okay, because it doesn't look, you don't look like you've been stressed out for your whole life. I was um, just in the other room with my husband and I was like, he was like, he's 71. I was like, no, no, you look good. Well, I can tell you, I can tell you this. My, my dad passed away at 103. My okay. dad was one of six, uh, was one of 19. Yeah, he was one of 19 into their late 80s, 90s. Uh, he outlived them all. But um, so we have some good genes in the family. But, you know, I, I mean, I don't feel any different than I felt 30, 40 years ago. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm just fortunate in that regard. And, you know, I try to keep myself in good shape. And hmm. it's, a, it's a number. Maybe That's it's it. the... <laughs> The, the high stress life was doing something for you, <laughs> living that long. Wow. Yeah, that might have worked in reverse. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, okay, I, I do want to get into your wife's faith and your faith uh, at some point in this episode because I think last time we spoke, I talked a little bit about my experience um, because I grew up, you know, with my dad teaching me the biblical stories and the psychological significance, but I didn't believe in God, that's for sure. I wanted to, but I didn't. Um, so you said you met your wife and it was kind of her faith that changed your life. Can you get into that a little bit? Yeah, my wife was a, a devout Christian when I met her, but she was 20 years old. And um, it, it had an impact on me in that, not that I was buying into it. I grew up Catholic, but for me, Catholic school, you know, Catholicism was like a subject in school. I went to Catholic school. And so I wasn't really engaged in in my faith. I understood that I had to practice the religion, but I wasn't engaged in my faith. I did believe in God, but that was about it. Um, so when I met my wife and I saw how devout she was, and then take that a step further, meeting her, her mother, my mother-in-law, all about Jesus. I mean, she was the most godly woman I ever met in my life. Very simple woman um, and had a, a beautiful way of expressing her faith. She was very... Um, you know, outgoing about it. But I respected their belief. It wasn't that I was buying into it. I respected their belief. And it was really at that point that I realized, you know, they didn't really know who I was. They grew up out here in California, where I am now, um, in Anaheim. And I'm from New York. So they didn't really know much about me or the mafia or anything like that. But it was saying to myself, these two women, they're a direct contradiction to everything I'm about. And when they really know who I am, how is this going to work out? You know, um, it's not going to work out. So wanting to have her in my life was started, was what made me interested in learning about my faith. So that's how she influenced me. But really what happened, um, when I went to prison the second time, I was out. I did five years. I was out on parole for 13 months, and then they violated my parole. And it's a whole story behind that. The government was upset with me because I wasn't cooperating. And they put me in solitary. Ooh. And I was in solitary for 29 months and seven days. Yeah, it was a long stretch, Michaela. And after that experience that we were not meant to be solo wow. creatures. We were meant to be social. Ooh. And a lot of guys at night, yeah, when those lights went out, man, you, you heard a lot of moaning and groaning. A lot of people do not do well, and I understand. Uh, but it was really during that experience that I grew my faith because I dove into my Bible. Um, if you see my prison Bible, there's more of my notes on there than there is scripture. And I had my wife send me several hundred books on all different faiths. 
because I really was in a search for the truth because I thought I would never come out of prison. The government had told me I, that I'm, I'm going to die in jail, that I'll never see the light of day again. So I was worried about eternity. Is this real? Yeah. Where am I going to end up? And so that's what really motivated me to learn about my faith. And, you know, in all due respect to everybody else, I came out of there believing 100% in Christianity through my research. You know, that's, it wasn't anything um, surreal. I didn't get visited by God in the cell. Uh, there was no, no moments like supernatural moments for me. Uh, it was just my research. And then the experience that I've had ever since, not only in my life, but in knowing and saw what God has done in their life. So that's how this came about with me. Wow. I can't imagine. I can't imagine solitary confinement like that for that period of time. Yeah, that's it intense. was hard, Michaela. You know, I, I'm so totally against that for young people that that are in prison. You know, unless they're a, a danger to others and a danger to themselves, it's just, uh, it's cruel and unusual. There's no question about it. Yeah, it's surprising that that's, it's surprising that that's still used, really. Because that seems like it's like akin to torture. So, to, you're not supposed to torture people, so it's strange that that's used. Okay. Well, um, listen, the prison system, uh, yeah. You know, they, they do what they feel they need to do, you know. You, you mentioned something that I'm not familiar with when you were describing, um, like when I first asked you who you were and what it is you do, you said something, you became a made member. Can you describe what a made member is? It, it made member is when you take an oath and you officially become a member of that life. And it is a very uh, solemn ceremony. And leading up to that, you have to prove your worth or prove your value and prove that you have the privilege in their view the honor to become a member and when that happens it happens in a very solemn ceremony and you know i, I underwent that ceremony um, on halloween night in 1975 <clears throat> and basically took an oath and i can describe it for you i mean you know there were six of us that took the oath that night and we walked into a room it was midnight we walked into a room individually the boss of the family was seated at like the head of a horseshoe configuration and the underboss and the consigliere, which are two official positions, were to his left and right. And then all the other captains, consigliere's were along, I mean, uh, couple of regimes were alongside of them. So I walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss and I held out my hand. He took a knife, cut my finger, some blood dropped on the floor. This is a blood oath. And then I cupped my hands. He took a picture of a Catholic saint put it in my hands and lit it aflame. And uh, it burned wow. quickly. It was, yeah, it was merely symbolic. It didn't hurt. And he said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into Cosa Nostra. Uh, violate what you know about this life. Betray your brothers and you will die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. Do you accept? Yes, I do. And at that point, you're a made man. <clears throat> wow. Okay. That's slightly different than any initiation ceremonies I've heard that a normal normal person goes through. Wow, that's quite yes, movie-like. It's, it's quite abnormal. Wow. Well, it is, you know, and it's, uh, you know, they wanted you to understand the seriousness of what you were getting involved in. So it's, uh, it's very solemn and it's taken very seriously. You know, 
the mob life of Cosa Nostra, it's not, people think it's a business, it's not a business. It's a way of life. It's a whole mind subculture from everything else that exists. So you got to be in it, you know, body, mind, and soul. Or you don't, you don't survive in that life. And, um, you know, so the fact that I was able to walk away um, is, is really, it doesn't often happen, you know, unless, unless people become informants and cooperate with the government and go into a witness protection program, it's very hard to get away from that life. Yeah. So how did you manage to do that? Well, you know, for me, there's two two reasons for that. You know, the um, the overall reason is I believe God had a different plan and a purpose for my life. And that's certainly played out over the past 20 some odd years. Um, but the practical reason for that is, you know, God never throws us into the fire without preparation. And I I, I knew that life extremely well. So when I walked away, I knew what I would face. You know, one of the horrors of that life, Michaela, and I, you know, again, I hate to be offensive, but I'm just being honest, is that you make a mistake, your best friend walks you into a room and you don't walk out again. And, you know, unfortunately through my 20 years, I know people that have experienced that. And so when I walked away, I said, okay, they're not walking me into a room, they're gonna have to come and get me. So I moved out to California you know, it's it's one thing to walk somebody in the people out, you know, cross country to try to hurt you and then get away with it. I was extremely um, uh, disciplined in that I changed my whole lifestyle. I didn't go into any nightclubs where people know who I am. And, you know, I walk out in a parking lot and, you know, I'm in trouble. Uh, I didn't walk my dog every morning at 7 a.m. I didn't go to the same restaurant every Tuesday. I didn't create patterns in my life. So if people were looking for me, they'd know where to find me. I was very discreet in that regard early on. And, you know, long story short, and they they did put a contract on my life and I did have trouble in that regard. And I had one or two close calls, but bottom line is I just outlasted everybody. (laughs) I mean, everybody I know is either dead or in prison for the rest of their life. And, you know, at the end of the day, I didn't put people in prison. I didn't turn against them in that way. I just left. So, you know, over a period of years, people said, ah, you know, we'll leave him alone. He didn't hurt anybody. And that was the end of that. So I think God protected me in all of this. I have to believe that. Yeah. Well, sounds like it. It's what it sounds like to me. Wow. Um, Okay. Let me see. I have, I have a lot of things I wanted to cover. Oh, one thing I was interested in, um, for decisions made, so let's say business decisions made in the mafia, um, does that decision come from the top down, or is there a negotiation people take part of? Well, it depends on what you know what we're talking about in business. You, you know the way fortunate in that I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business and had a lot of success as a result, both legally and illegally. Um, the biggest thing I did, you know, I had a, a devised a scheme to defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. Uh, it would be nice if I was in that business right now. I'd be making more money than I made back then, <laughs> but because um, <clears throat> the taxes are a lot more. But um, it was my scheme, so to speak. So, but anytime you do something in that life, you have to put it on record with your boss. So he has to know what you're doing. And so, you know, when I came across this deal, I brought it into my boss at the time and I told him what I was doing. 
And, you know, I paid up to the family also. I gave them, you know, part of the proceeds of what I was earning. And you have to do that. <clears throat> That's how the family survives. But when I had a legal business, which I had many, I had two car agencies, I had a film production company, some restaurants. Hmm. That was mine. I didn't have to give anything to anybody uh, with that. So, um, but, you know, the, the boss in the hierarchy of the family, they do get involved in a lot of the business dealings because they need to know what's going on. And how risky it is, I suppose. Yeah, you know, and, and sometimes they'll say, no, we don't want you involved in that. Like, you know, in our, our life, during my era in that life, we were not allowed to deal with drugs. Um, couldn't deal with drugs. Drugs was off limits. Um, I know guys that got in serious trouble for dealing with drugs, uh, you know, if they violated the rules. Um, and that comes from the top, you know, and you can't violate when they're, when they're no discussion. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, how much money were you making from this, this, I guess, gas scam, you could call it? Well, yes, I ran that operation for about eight years. Um, I had the Russian mobsters from Brighton Beach in Brooklyn that were working with me. They had a, a little wow. gas operation. And yeah, we were very close. And over a period of eight years, we were selling a half a billion gallons of gas a month. And we were taking down 30, 40 cents a gallon. We were bringing in between eight and $10 million a week at that time. And when was that? So, you know, that's what that's what the operation was. That's what the operation was grossing back then. Wow. What when what year was that? Uh, this was from about 79 through 85. Okay, wow, that is a lot of money. And so how much, and let me know if I'm asking anything I shouldn't be asking, but how, how much of that did you keep? Well, you know, I mean, I, there, there was a million and a half, two million dollars a week that was coming into my pocket. Uh, wow. I had, to, I had to pay up, yeah, our, our, my boss, the family was getting uh, about two million dollars a week also. Um, because we didn't have a lot of expenses, quite honestly, <laughs> you know, we just, uh, the way the, the way we ran the operation, I mean, you know, I, I had my own jet plane at that time. I had a helicopter. I had, you know, three houses in three different States in the country. Uh, so, I mean, we had all the little bells and whistles that, that a little bit more comfortable. Uh, but I was putting a lot of money away. Um, no question wow. at that time. I, I didn't realize that you could have uh, kind of different mafia groups work together. I'm not that I know anything about this topic, but you said you worked with the Russian mafia. Is that is that common for different, I guess, groups to work together? I mean, you can. I mean, we you know we oftentimes worked with a, a group of Irish mob guys called the Westies. They were in Manhattan. They were uh, based in Manhattan. We worked with them at times. The Russian mob. You know, I, not many people work with them, but I happen to get along with them. And uh, we had a very good relationship for a number of years. Uh, but it's not really common, but it does happen. It depends upon the situation. Do you know anything about how it's structured now? Like, is is the mafia still, um, I guess, as powerful as it was back then now and just not talked about as much? It's, you know, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, it was John Gotti that destroyed the mob because <clears throat> he was so flashy and, and uh, you know, outspoken. And people like to point fingers in different ways. But what destroyed the mob was the RICO Act, the racketeering laws. Um, we didn't we didn't understand it. We didn't keep up with it. And it gave the government such a 
Um, and it devastated my former life, you know, throughout the mid eighties. And you got to give Giuliani credit for that because he was the first one that used the racketeering laws effectively and he set the pace. And so he put so many guys away. Uh, he took away so, so much power that we had through the unions. Hmm. Um, he stripped us of all of that and he made so many people turn informant. And as a result, it's not as powerful today, not nearly as powerful as it was during my era, but it's still there. It's not going away. Uh, it still exists. The same structure is in place. Uh, I think guys have gotten smart and they're a lot more low key. You don't see the John Gotti's anymore out there and flashy uh, because you can't last in that life when you when you're like that. Um, but it's not going away in my lifetime. I can tell you that. If you're listening to this, you are probably some of the most well-informed and least paranoid people on the planet. But are you too nonchalant about your safety? What about your data? Do you have the same mindset when it comes to keeping your internet connection secure? It's not paranoia if everyone's really out to get you. The main thing about using a VPN is if you're downloading content and you don't want to be caught, you don't have to be paranoid that you'll go to jail because of some archaic law when doing so. Just use NordVPN. Your internet service provider also can apparently sell your data to advertisers for a profit, all while forfeiting the idea that people like you have a right to own their online information. You can defend your online privacy by grabbing your NordVPN deal today over at nordvpn.com TMPP, or use promo code TMPP for 61% off their premium plan and their free anti-malware feature, all with NordVPN's 30-day money-back guarantee. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose... I mean, I don't know what the effects of the last couple of years have done, but I know just the general public has less trust in the government. So I would assume, you know, the more restrictive of a society, the more likely people are to do things illegally, especially if you get forced into doing things that you think are reasonable and then they turn illegal. That'd make the line a little blurry. Well, you know, it's funny, Michaela. I, you know, I speak in church quite a bit and there was some times when I'll, I'll make this statement and, and the pastor like cringes. And I said, listen, I have no moral issue. I'm being very honest. I have no moral issue with stealing tax money from the government because I believe I can do a lot better with it than they do. They steal our money as far as I'm concerned and waste it on wasteful things and, and enrich themselves. Um, I said, but I won't do it because I'm not going to go back to jail and I'm, I'm not going to, you know, uh, sin in that regard, whether it is a sin or not, I really don't know. But um, and it passed the like cringes, but people in the, in the church clap for me. They stand up and they give me an ovation when they say that. That's how, how much distrust they have in the yeah. government today. It's evident. Yeah. Um, you know, you couldn't I have said that, you, you couldn't have said that 30, 40 years ago, people would look at you like you said something wrong, but now they applaud you for saying that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty strange time. When, when I first met my husband, um, he's kind of what turned me to the, the Christian faith as well. And he's very Christian. <laughs> and um, he, I, I was being skeptical. And he, he's a pretty like disagreeable, skeptical person, but I was like, oh yeah, I don't really trust, you know, people are just people, right? So you put people in positions of power like doctors say, or people in the government, but they're still just people. So it was like, I don't, I don't trust I would say if, if someone's in a position of authority, I'm less likely to trust them for whatever reason. And so when we first met, we kind of had discussions about 
who was trustworthy and who isn't trustworthy. And I was like, I don't trust the government right now. Like, I don't, I don't really trust the medical system. I don't really trust the government. And anyway, he's come around. But I think that is a change in the recent years. Like you said, 30 years ago, things would probably have been different, significantly different. It's gotten bad in the last five years, yeah. really. Yes, yeah. absolutely. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, you don't want to get me started on that. I mean, I just wrote a book called A Mafia Democracy. Um, and, mm. you know, Michaela, it's, it's amazing how mob-like our government is acting in so many different ways. And, you know, since I still have that mentality and I've had that experience, I see how Machiavellian our government is being. And it's, it's frightful. It really is. It's scary. And the government overreach and the things that are happening now, I'm, I'm really concerned about the future of our country. I really am. This is not the America that I grew up in or that my, my family believed in. Um, when I said, not my dad, but everybody else, but you know, it's frightening. It really is what I see going on here on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. I, I just did an episode with my dad and, um, this guy named Vivek Ramaswamy, um, who, who wrote a book called Woke Inc. And we talked about ESGs. Um, I don't know if you know about ESGs, you might. But it's, it stands for Environment Social Governance Scores. And so CEOs of major, major corporations, some of the really big ones like BlackRock, have got together and they decided that the companies under them should have ESG scores. So they're rating these like capitalist companies on how well they do supporting the environment or how well they do supporting social causes, right? And it kind of undermines the entire system that America was built in, just capitalism, because you can trust a CEO to increase the wealth of their company, right, and increase the amount of money their shareholders have and be greedy in that way. But when they start implementing policies that infect the environment or affect the environment, things like that, the country starts getting a little bit strange. We're releasing that episode today, but it's something worth looking into, ESGs, because I think a lot of the... Um, political unrest that's caused by a number of reasons right now is also caused by this kind of top-down implementation of ESGs and these giant corporations. Um, ESGs. I'll send you, I'll send you a link on, I think you should know yeah, about Yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to see that. I'd love to see it, really. Yeah. Um, um, okay, one, one question. So if you've kind of I mean, you, you grew up in this, um, but if you've kind of crossed the line and decided, okay, uh, the, government's, the government taking tax money um, isn't, isn't good, and if the government's after your family and police are after your family, um, how do you define what's morally acceptable and what's not morally acceptable if it's not by what the law says? Well, you know, that's... Uh... You know, that, that's an age-old question, and <clears throat> somebody had said to me one time, you know, Michael, you have no moral issue with paying taxes, but Jesus said, you know, render therefore to Caesar what are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And I said, yes, he did say that. I said, but understand the environment in which Jesus said that. He didn't believe that the Romans should be overtaxing the people. He wasn't saying that's a good thing. And that's what the government should be doing. But, you know, they tried to put Jesus on the spot when he was in a crowd of people. 
And if he would have said, no, don't pay the government or the Romans, well, he would have put people in jeopardy. So what he said is, listen, you got to obey the law. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's not sinful what the Romans are doing, taking advantage of you. But he was he outsmarted the people that asked him that question. So um, do I think it's morally wrong to you know, want to hide money from the government that I think that they're misusing and that they're using against us. You know, I don't think it's sinful. I don't. Um, and and I'm try- not trying to justify it because I'm not doing that now. And I'm not justifying what I did back then because when I did it back then, I was a criminal. I did it with criminal intent. I wasn't being, you know, Robin Hood or I wasn't trying to share it with others. You know, and your intent means everything. So back then it was criminal intent. I was enriching myself and the people around us. But um, so at at that point it was sinful. But if I were to do that now and say, you know, the government is overreaching, I know for a fact um, Mm -hmm. that this is wasteful money. I know that for a fact that they're taking advantage of people that are trying to put food on their table and pay their mortgage and, and so on and so forth. So I, I don't believe it would be sinful if I had the right intent in what I was going to do with that with that money. Yeah. So judge the um, heart. I don't know if I explain explain that right. But yeah. Um, Kale, I mean, I wrote this chapter in my book that if you see why why is it that government workers, I mean, government uh, elected officials, go in with blue collar income and lives and come out as multimillionaires. Because they use the system to enrich themselves. And that's not what this system was built upon. They're supposed to be public servants doing the work for the people that put them in office. But, you know, you get people like Nancy Pelosi. I'm sorry that, you know, she's enriched herself to the tune of several hundred million dollars using her position to enrich herself. To me, that's sinful. That's not what this system is set up for. Um so I look at it as I'm exposing this. I'm letting people know this is what's happening. Now, I don't want an insurrection. I don't want a revolution. What I'm saying is the way you make people pay for this, you hold them accountable at the voting booths. You know, and, and I'll tell you this in your own life. If your husband will use that or, or my wife lies to me once, well, okay. They lie to me a second time. You start to get a little bit more irritated. A third time, a fourth time, it becomes a pattern. You're not going to accept it. You're not going to accept it. it it's not a healthy relationship. Well, we put our, our people in office. They lie to us constantly, constantly mm-hmm. make promises they don't keep, reverse themselves, you know, and we look at this. No, it's not politics. That's lying. And we shouldn't allow them to do that. So what do you do? You vote them out. We still do have power in, in numbers here in this country. And that's that's the whole reason I wrote the book, the whole reason I'm so irritated with this. And, you know, people say, well, Michael, why are you so why are you so in tune with this now? It's not me. I'm 71 years old. There's not much more they can do to me or about me. Or, you know, that's just not, I'm here now. But I have seven children. I have grandchildren and I'm concerned about the future of this country for their benefit. And so I'm trying to sound the alarm, so to speak, to let people understand um, what's really going on. And some of the things that I'm seeing now are just, they're so scary. I mean, the way the government is using the FBI as a oh, tool for them. Yeah, the that's supposed scary. To be an, it's supposed to be an independent agency. That's very, very, very scary. Now, I will tell you this. 
I know from past experience that the FBI overreaches, that they break the law to go after criminals. But maybe, maybe, McKellie, you can justify it because mobsters are criminals. So, hey, you overreach a little bit against the mobster. Nobody's going to get upset. But when you start doing that against legitimate people, because remember, you give the government, they'll take a yard. They'll take as much as they possibly can. And if they overreach against the criminal, they'll overreach against the legitimate person, too. So you have to keep them in check. That's what democracy, that's what a republic is all about. We have to keep them in check. And unfortunately, I don't see that happening now. And it's very scary to me. It's also hard to see who's in charge right now. Like who's making the decisions behind what's going on. That scares me. (laughs) It's like you don't even know what's happening. Well, it should should scare you. You know, and most people, and you don't blame them, they're oblivious to this. They don't understand. You know, they're being fed information and they take it for what it's worth. But, you know, middle America, most people in this country, what are they concerned about? Paying their mortgage, putting food on the table. They're not not paying attention to the things that are going on. And they don't see it. They don't understand it. They can't blame them. Um, You know, I... Every once in a while, I'll watch one of these shows where they go out into the street and they ask people about things that are going on in government today. And some of the responses, Michaela, I don't know if you ever, people are so going on in, in our country, our world. It's, it's, and they're voting. They're voting. I so, know. Why? Yeah. You well, know, it, it's, it, it's a lot easier I to, I think it's a lot easier to operate in your life if you just take some things for granted, right? Now, it's not easier if, the things that you trust start failing around you. But if if you walk around, like before I kind of started questioning everything, you know, I had trust in the government doing what a government is supposed to do and the medical system doing what a medical system is supposed to do. And then you don't have to think about those things. You can just say, okay, those work how they're supposed to work and you can focus on other issues in your life. But if you suddenly start thinking about all those things, it's like, oh, what exactly is the government and what is it doing right now and who's in charge and what are its goals and how is that changing the shape of the country? And then how are different policies being implemented? How are those affecting me? Like that complicates things to a level that makes it a lot harder to think, well, I I need to go to work today and just make enough money so I can eat. It's like that's on a different level. Exactly. No, you nailed it. You're absolutely right. It's just it's so much information to process. It's uh, it's very difficult. It's very difficult for people to focus on what search and say what's really happening here. They don't want to deal with it, and I get it. They they put people in office. They expect them to do the right thing, and, mm-hmm. and that's it. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way. Mm-hmm. Um, not not to not to necessarily get into a biblical discussion, but that that um, verse you talked about that's repay to Caesar, uh, what belongs to Caesar. Um, I also wonder what he was talking about when he said repay to Caesar, what belongs to Caesar, right? Because you could say repay to the government, what belongs to the government. That's not necessarily what the government is telling you belongs to them. Well, you know, people don't understand. We're taxed on everything. I mean, the food you eat, the clothes you buy, the car you drive, uh, the the the, uh, the road you drive on, 
the airline you travel on, everything is taxed. You know, we sometimes forget that. It's not only personal income tax or corporate tax. Everything is taxed. There's nothing that's tax-free uh, in our daily lives. So does the government have the right to tax everything that we live by? I guess they do. They're the government. They're in power. They can do it. They make the laws. Doesn't mean it's morally that. Especially when the money is being squandered. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. If the money is being used for the right for the right things, well, okay. We have to support America, this country. We have to support it. When if you look at the government waste, if people really focused on it and understood where their money was going, they'd be outraged. Outraged. I have a chapter in my book that talks all about this. They'd be outraged. The, the billions and billions of dollars of wasteful spending uh, that, that's just done for the benefit of the people in office, it's, it's mind-boggling. So what made you decide specifically to write about what you wrote about? You know, it just it got to a point where I said, I just can't sit on I just can't. I have a platform. You know, I have a, a, a fairly big following and I said, it's not right for me just to sit on this. I have to make people aware of it. And and again, it's really for the future of my children and grandchildren mm -hmm. that this country is I, I think we're on a, a, a very bad course. And I don't know if it's reversible at this point. I really don't. I don't you know, biblically. Are we getting near the end times? Uh, th there's a lot of, you know, people always say that, and it could be another thousand years. Who knows? I mean, uh, we don't know. But it certainly looks like things are falling apart here in America. I mean, the whole mentality is changing. You know, people are now, our young people are, are um, talking about socialism in a good way. Socialism has really, I mean, real socialism hasn't worked, you know, uh, credibly anywhere in the world, but we're talking about that here in the United States, um, and they're advocating it. I mean, you know, we have politicians now that are that are uh, avowed socialists, and people yeah. are supporting them. So, I mean, it's it's scary stuff for me, and I just figured, hey, you know what? I have a platform. Um, uh, it, it's time for me to sound the alarm, and that's what I did. Do you do you think? Um... So I, I've talked to my dad about this too, and I was like, things look pretty bad from my point of view at the moment. And I don't know if it's going to get worse um, or if if people are going to get sick of it and in maybe a decade things will turn around because it's gotten worse so quickly that maybe society needs time to catch up to kind of realize what's going on to fight back against it. But I asked him if it was actually worse than what he's experienced because he's been alive during, he was very concerned about the Cold War Right. And that was definitely, you know, America entered danger zone during uh, that period of time. But do you think from your experience throughout life, politically, this is the most unstable you've seen America? Oh, absolutely. We said, you know, there was a time when the Democratic and Republican parties were not too far apart. They really weren't. They had some different things, you know, uh, different ideologies in a little way. But you can have peaceful conversation. You can have intelligent dialogue. You know, Democrats and Republicans got along. Um, I've never seen this country so divided. I've never seen such vitriol, such hatred, such venom coming 
out from one side against the other. And it's starting at the top. Listen, you know, I, I, I was a supporter of Donald Trump because I supported his policies. And I took some heat from that. People say, well, you're a Trump lover. I said, no, I'm just not a Trump hater. I don't have the syndrome. I supported his policies because I thought they were good for America. I said, listen, I don't invite him to my house for dinner. He's not going to date one of my daughters. Uh, you know, personally, we don't have to get along. But his, his policies for America, I thought, were good. If he was a Democrat, I would I would support him also because of his policies. But you, you can't even talk like that anymore because mm-hmm. people are so blinded by hatred. And, you know, th- what I disagreed with Trump is I thought he was very divisive. Now, you know, a lot of people say, well, he had to fight back. Well, he could have fight, fought back a little bit more diplomatically because it starts from the top. You know, when people see this division on the top, it, it bleeds down into have these two forces that are just at odds with each other all the time. And I'm seeing that now worse than ever, worse than ever. There's so much division in this country. Families are fighting with one another over their political beliefs. It's just terrible. And I think we're on a course. I don't it would take somebody with a very, very strong personality and real leadership qualities, somebody that has to be charismatic, that has to be endearing, has to be just that special kind of person to try to and really believe in bringing this country together again. And I just don't know if that person exists. Yeah, that's going to be a difficult person to to find. Um, Even just somebody who wants to bring the country together and doesn't think that one part of the country are full of demons. <laughs> Even just finding that person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's going to be tricky. Um, okay. G- going, going back to your kind of experience in the, in the mob, did you learn, did you learn anything that you've passed on to your kids that was, that you found helpful from living that life? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of things, listen, in that life, you, you have to have discipline very, very important. You got to learn how to respect and obey authority. It's kind of a, it's almost like militaristic in that way, you know, mm. and I think you know, I was president, I would have every 18 year old join the military for two years. I think it's, it's great learning. I think it's good for our young men, especially, you know, to learn discipline and authority and structure in their lives. So, you know, I've also learned in that life that you become a good listener. You don't shoot your mouth off. You're very slow to speak, very quick to listen. And I learned in that life that um, you should be the last one to condemn somebody. Because, you know, that life, Michaela, is like a wheel. And things turn around. The person that you condemn one day that's on the bottom might be your boss on the top. And they don't, they don't forget that. So you're always the last one to condemn people. Um, you know, to try to try to reason things out first so that when your turn comes, you're not the first one that's condemned. So, you know, and these are qualities that I think are important in life. They're, they're life skills that I think are very important. You know, I used to tell people, especially in business, you know, there's times when you could be the smartest person in the room and you don't want anybody to know that. So what do you do? You keep your mouth shut and you listen, you let people talk and so on and so forth. And then, and you learn a lot by that. You learn a lot about the person you're sitting with and the deal and the negotiation. There's other times when 
you're not the smartest person in the room. And people don't know that because you're not, you're not speaking out of turn. They're wondering what you're thinking. And meanwhile, they're talking and you're getting all the, you can become educated during that meeting. So, you know, I've, I've taught my kids that. And, and for the most part, they've listened. I mean, I have five daughters. So, so my daughters are, uh, they're all very independent and they're, uh, you know, they're like their mom. They, they, they certainly think for themselves and, and they're, uh, um, they're tough. I got to tell you, they're, they're not pushovers. They're very tough. <laughs> I, that doesn't hopefully surprise they me. instilled a little bit of that. Yeah, that, that yes. doesn't surprise me. That's very cool. Um, did you have kind of a, an us and them mentality? You said that you were in pre-med and that you stopped doing pre-med, yes. right? So did you have a group of friends that were kind of out, completely outside of this? Um, and then you ended up getting more involved is that kind of what happened getting more involved back in the mob no i mean not yeah not really i mean you know i was an athlete in school i mean i played sports i uh even though i knew about the life and i was part of the life and i, I always had my dad's friends around you know at the house and all of that um i was just fairly normal in my relationships going to school you know i had friends that way and of course they knew who I was because my dad had so much publicity. So at times, you know, I got into scuffles with kids when they'd make remarks about my dad. Oh, you got a mafia dad. And, you know, I would fight. But, um, and then a lot of kids, they love mafia dad. You know how kids are. You never know what they're going to, what side they're going to pick with you. <laughs> but, um, so I was fairly normal. Things really started when, when my dad went to prison and then I was really immersed in the life when Joe Colombo, who was the boss of the Colombo family, kind of took me under his wing. And then I was around the guys all the time. And then it meant something to me uh, because I had a goal. I wanted to help my dad. So I started to pay more attention, to listen, and to get more involved. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think I've, I think I've done a lot, not to like compare us at all, but um, a lot of the way that I've structured my life was to help my dad for whatever reason. And I guess, I mean, well, I mean, lots of people know who he is now, so I guess he's an incredible person, but I always had like a deep respect for my dad. So a lot of what I've done, honestly, probably since I got healthy, because when I was sick, I was, that was basically what I did was just being sick. But when I got healthy, I think I've spent a lot of my time, um, helping my dad for probably really seven years, like seven years basically full time. It's just been, how do I make this person's life easier? Because he went through like health struggles and like fame and controversy. And it was like, how do I make his life easier? Um, luckily things seem to be set up. I've like structured things now enough that it takes up less time, but it's been an interesting experience. It's an, it's an interesting experience. Do you have siblings? Yeah, I was one of seven also. Um, unfortunately, two of my younger sisters passed away, so there's, uh, there's uh, five of us left now. Wow. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, and we're fairly close. I mean, they, they all live back east, uh, but we, you know, we stay in touch. Is, is there... You know, it's a... funny because it was my, it was my wife, it, it was my wife that really... Um, turned me on to dad she was always fascinated by she she listened to your dad quite a bit 
Hmm. And she was very fascinated by his views on a lot of things. And he, she said, Mike, you got to listen to, you know, Jordan. And it was, it was fascinating, really. Cause she, and she still listens to your dad a lot. Now we've got to get you guys to have a conversation. I told him we were on the phone before I started the podcast and I was like, oh, I'm talking to this guy who's in the mob. He turned his life around. It should be a really interesting conversation. It's like, you guys should, you guys should talk. That'd be good. I think people yeah. would really enjoy that. That'd be a good conversation. Yeah, it would be nice one day. One thing I wanted to know, are there women that are in the more like business area of the mob or is it really focused around men in the families? In America, in Cousin Austria, which means this thing of ours, in Cousin Austria in America, women don't play a role in that life at all. Um, you know, unless, unless for some reason, you know, one of the guys was bringing their girlfriend or their wife involvement in some way, but they have no authority, they have no place in that life at all. Uh, it's different in Italy, in the mafia in Italy. As a matter of fact, I did a, I just did a, uh, um, a video on my YouTube channel uh, last week about a woman who actually um, was kind of the boss of, of one of the mafia families in Naples, which is my hometown, my parents' hometown. Um, so in Italy, yes, in the mafia here in America, no, not till this point, not through for the last hundred years. Now, whether that changes or not, I don't know, but I, I doubt it will. And is that kind of the same? You said you worked with, um, Irish and Russians. Did they kind of have a similar setup Not that it was a hundred percent men? Um, from, from to the best know. of my knowledge, it's, it's a hundred percent men. Yeah, I mean, they didn't, you know, these other groups didn't have the structure that we had. They didn't have the formality that we had. You know, with the Russian mob, I don't believe they take an oath. I don't believe they have ranks. They're more clannish. Yeah. It's more family, actual family, blood relatives that are involved. And it seems that the person that's making the most money calls the shots. Um, so they didn't have the structure that we had. The Irish people the same way. They were just you know, gangsters, you know, without a lot of structure. Interesting. And, and no women. I, I didn't notice any women at, at all. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't, I'm not that surprised by that. Um, was it stressful then for, I mean, it must've been like, I just, I can't imagine having to deal with life and then also having to deal with the fact that you're, you're doing, you're operating illegally. So you have to worry about the government on top of everything. Um, that must like, is it stressful for families associated or was it stressful for families associated, women associated with the mafia? Yeah, you know, Michaela, I, you know, one thing I don't do, I, have, I never glorify the life uh, because it, it doesn't deserve to be glorified. But what I've always said is that the mob life, the gang life, they're evil lifestyles. And the reason I say that, I'm not calling the guys evil because I was one of them and, and everybody's not evil. Now, there was some bad people, but that's true in every walk of life. But the lifestyle is evil because I don't know any family of any made member of that life that hasn't been totally destroyed, and, oh. and including my own. Now, not, not my wife and kids, fortunately, but my mother spent 33 years without her husband um, while my dad was incarcerated. And in the last years of her life, she died in 2012, I can only describe her relationship with my dad as very ugly because she blamed him for everything that went wrong in her. 
And what went wrong? Well, I had a sister that died of an overdose of drugs at the age of 27, my baby sister. My brother was a drug addict for 25 years. He got himself in trouble. He was a street kid, uh, ended up cooperating with the government and actually cooperated against my father and put my father ah. back in prison when he was out on parole. A son against the father. My younger, another younger sister, um, she was mentally unstable. She died at the age of 42 of cancer. Um, and so the whole family was devastated. And any lifestyle that causes that for a family is an evil lifestyle. And that's how it is across the board. So it's what I try to explain to these young kids today. I said, you're not only doing this to yourself, you're destroying your family. This is very destructive. It's a bad lifestyle. And, and so, yes, it was very, very stressful. My mother was constantly under stress. You know, my sisters that didn't accept it the way I was able to accept it, you know, a little different sometimes with a, with a, with a girl and a boy. And so it's, it's very hard. It's a very hard life to navigate. And um, I, I guess people get it. You know, they look at it they're from the outside looking in. Uh, but, you know, the unfortunate thing, Mikhail, with a lot of young men, they're very, very, um, very impressioned by the life. Meaning I go into, you know, to these gangbangers and they'll look at me and I say, Mike, come on. You had the cars, you had the women, you had the power, the prestige, you had a jet plane. They'll watch the movie Goodfellas. I don't know if you ever saw that. And I'll, you know, they'll point out all the good things and I'll have to ask them. I said, well, wait a second. Didn't you watch the second half of the movie, the end of the movie? Who died? Who went to prison? Who lost everything? Who got killed? You didn't see that part. They don't see that. They only see the first part. Who's got all the money? And the they don't look at the devastating end of the story. So that's why I discourage people all the time. And I, you know, I've worked very hard with young people to try to discourage them from that life and let them get their lives turned around. Obviously, for me, I don't know how you turn your life around without a belief in, in God. I, I don't. I don't know how you do that. But um, so I try to steer people that way. But it's a tough, very, very tough life. It really is. I don't know how you would turn your life around without a belief in God either. I mean, before, so I, I didn't, I didn't, I was never an atheist. I was never a full-blown atheist, but I, I never, I think I was so sick too. Like I was so sick with joint replacements and on so much medication that I was like, if God exists, like I hate him. Like, this is, this is awful. And I can remember, I think when I was 17, I was 17 and I was suicidal with, like, pain. And I can remember thinking, there's, like, there's definitely no God. And if there is one, he's not good, right? Um, but now after I've been through all of that and kind of, and I'm, thank, <laughs> thank God I'm better, um, I can also see what that did for me, right? Which is something that, you can't see when you're in it. And so I don't think of it the same way. But I think, uh, I, think I would have a hard time um, with some of the things I struggled with without, without a belief in God. Um, part of it, I think, too, taking care of myself. Like, I think one of the things I struggled with is I'm more inclined to take care of people around me than to take care of myself. And I think a belief in God has probably helped that for whatever reason. Because it's kind of... I guess, sinful in a way to not take care of yourself, right? And I don't think I would have viewed it like that without a belief in God. It's like, no, I, like, I have to, otherwise I'm doing something wrong. 
Yeah, I, I get it. You know, it's uh, it's the age old pro- age old question. You know, why do bad things happen to good people? And when you don't have an understanding um, biblically of what God is all about, it's it's a very hard concept to understand. Well, we have a loving and gracious God, and why do these bad things happen to good people? And unless you have a real, you know, uh, understanding of Scripture and and a thorough understanding, it's it's a very hard question to answer. But as Christians, when you understand your faith, it becomes a lot more clear. Um, you said that when you were in prison, you read hundreds of books on different faiths, um, which is very interesting. So what what was it about Christianity that made you decide that was, I guess, the most logical explanation for reality? Well, you know, I, I think it goes back to Jesus. You, you know, one of the things that's very... Con- um, and first of all, you have to believe the um, authenticity of Scripture. So I went back and did a study. I had my wife send me books on uh, authenticating Scripture in the Bible. And there's so much evidence mm. to prove that the Bible is really authentic. So once I got past that and I said, okay, I can trust this. Then I started to look, and I'm, I'm more of a New Testament guy. And I really, what was convincing to me is the attitude of the apostles after Jesus died. And to see how, you know, it would have been a lot more normal for them to run and hide because their leader um, was gone and was killed in a violent way. I mean, this is somebody that they had all the faith in the world and then they see him destroyed in front of them. And so what happens? You know, they leave. Um, That would have been normal. But then after Jesus resurrected, visited with them, they became like lions. They became strong. They were willing to go to their death and stand up for Jesus. They wouldn't even deny him at that. That was very powerful evidence to me. And so what I did was I researched to try to convince myself one way or the other that this is real or it isn't real. And I can't get into all of it, but the research that I did convinced me that what happened to the apostles was real that the history showed that this is this was a real happening. There really was a resurrection. The attitude and the actions of the apostles afterwards proved to me that there was a risen Jesus. And um, it was all, all of these things that, that combined. You know, I always tell people, I don't suggest that you go and live in solitary for several years and do the research like I did to prove, you know, scripture. But for me, it was life-changing and life-saving because it became indelible. And, you know, here's another thing, um, you know, Mikhail, I try to look at things very practically. So from the time I was five years old, my father drummed it into my head. Michael, you got to be a man's man. That's the standard in life you have to live up to. I heard it my whole life. When I got into the life, the same thing. We're men above men. We're men of honor. I heard that all the time. So... When I started to study Jesus, I did things a little little bit differently. I separated his manhood from his deity, and I really wanted to see what kind of man he was because I was so in tune with the qualities and characteristics of what a man's man should be. So when I studied Jesus of Nazareth, I was blown away by his character, his strength, his, his emotion. Everything about him to me was was perfect. 
And I said, this is somebody you should emulate. So, so hmm. trying to be very practical about it, I said, okay, let's say I try to emulate Jesus of Nazareth throughout my life. Well, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be a better husband to my wife, a better father to my children. If I'm a boss, I'm going to treat my employees right. If I'm an employee, I'm going to give my boss an honest day's work. Everybody in the community, I'm going to be outgiving. I'm going to be wanting to help people. They're all going to benefit from me trying to emulate what I perceive to be the great man that ever walked the earth. And I'm going to benefit. And then I said, well, when I'm dead, if he's not the savior of the world, well, I'm dead anyway. So what did I have to lose? I had nothing to lose. So I came to the conclusion that emulating Jesus is a win-win situation for any man. And I actually teach that. It makes sense to men. You can't lose because if being the savior of the world and are accepting Christ uh, and asking for forgiveness, uh, if we're wrong about that, well, then we're dead anyway. We didn't, we didn't lose anything throughout our life, but everybody benefited from us being a better person. And, um, but I do believe that he is the savior of the world. I believe it with all my heart. I'm not trying to justify it or convince myself otherwise. I'm not a perfect person in any way, but my faith is perfect because I believe this, um, and nothing can stand in the way of that at this point in time. I've come to the understanding of why bad things happen to good people. I get it all. You know, my kids complain to me sometime, Michael. You know, Daddy, that's not fair. I said, really? You know what's not fair? What's not fair is this little kid that was born in Africa that has nothing to eat, no shoes on his feet, and that child did nothing but be born. That's all he did. So don't tell me what's not fair because you got it pretty good in your life. And I understand this, you know, and it, it's helped me just, it just helped me throughout my life, you know, having this point of view. And it's all because of my faith. It's all because of the research and the study I did and the impact that God has had on my life. That was great. I think I think that's similar to uh, what my dad believes. And I'm not entirely sure exactly where he is in his journey. I'm not like it's hard to kind of get a read on that. But what I know he mm -hmm. firmly believes is that if you if you um, act as if Jesus would have acted, then your life is better and the people's lives around you is better. And so that's what he tells people too, is that's the best way to live for sure. And 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 everyone really who's familiar with Christianity kind of knows that. So that's very that's very cool. Um, Michael, if people are interested in learning more about you or finding you online, where should they go? Well, my website is michaelfrancis.com. Um, YouTube, just plug in Michael Francis. I'm on all the social media platforms, you know, under my own name. Uh, usually it'll say official next to it so they know it's me. Uh, my book, um, if they go on mafiademocracy.com, uh, they'll get a free chapter. We give them a free chapter. Uh, to see if they're interested and then they can purchase it anywhere on my website we give them a signed copy of it um i'm, I'm all over the place you know uh easy to find but um uh yeah and you know hopefully people tune in and uh, you know they hear a little bit more well thank you i really appreciate you coming on that was great very interesting well i appreciate you having me michael and I'm, I'm glad that things are going well and and uh you know, I see you're really growing too. You know, your, your subs are really up there. So it's, it's great to know. Really. Yeah. 
and I know weird. you've been through a lot and you know to see you yeah to see you to see you come out you know on, on the other side of it is is just great it's very rewarding you know I've learned something and I think you said something that kind of uh, uh, stuck with me um, you know when you're focused on yourself you know you got so many things going on and you're trying to take care of yourself and 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 rightfully you know, it's like what that it's like you know when you're in air, an airplane and they say you know, if the oxygen comes down, put it first on yourself and then you help everybody else. You got to help yourself first. But I have found, I, I really mean that, is that it's it's so much more rewarding to give of yourself than it is to receive. And one of the things that motivates me is that I, on a daily basis, you know, between emails and social media messages, I get so many messages from people that have been inspired by my story, by things that I have to say and encouraged by it. And it's it's very motivating and it keeps you going and it's just a wonderful feeling. It makes you know that, hey, you're doing the right thing. And so you continue on. So, and I think you're inspiring a lot of people. I got great comments, wonderful comments um, when, when you were on my YouTube platform. Um, you know, people saying how courageous you were and, and just, oh, just wonderful nice. comments. So. Yeah, you're inspiring a lot of people. My daughters were like, wow, you know, um, and they don't listen to anything on my YouTube channel, but they listen to you. And, and it was uh, I was I was very glad. About wow. That. So they'll probably listen to this also. Oh, that's very cool. OK, well, thank you very much. Um, I, I really think what you're doing is great, too. I mean, having actual experience doing extremely serious things in a very manly way right? Like it's, it's harder to get more manly than, than the mafia, right? For, for, especially for people, I guess, who, well, just in, in general. And so having that experience and being in really scary situations and then, and then talking about it honestly and what you've learned from it um, and showing that you're like a family man, it's, it's great. I think it's really good for people to see. So I'm going to try and see if, uh, I can get you to talk to my dad because I'd like to watch that conversation. I think that would be good. Well, that would be great. Maybe the three of us even, but uh, it would be great. Yeah. I usually just sit there quietly when he's involved. Like even the podcast I'm releasing today, it was like <laughs> I was kind of just sitting there. I was like, eh, I'll just listen, that, which which I'm totally fine with. Those are like, those are my favorites. So thank you again for coming on. All right, Mikhail. Thank you. God bless. And uh, just keep doing what you're doing. Great.